So the first full day almost over. It's kind of few, right? This is a big ship that we're launching here to settle in for a month or two of practice. So a lot of pieces come together to actually shape the community that we're going to build here and just get everyone kind of oriented in the right uh, supportive direction for this amount of deep practice. So it will get simpler, hopefully, after today. A little bit tomorrow, we'll still do some rituals and settling in. We'll have the cell phone ritual, the big renunciation practice. We'll talk a bit about that at the end. But gradually the intention is to more stillness, more silence. But as I said, it's a really special time here, these long retreats. I think it was said last night that um, so many people, something's kind of fritzing somewhere. So many people hold this retreat. You know, there's obviously the people up here, the teachers. Can you hear that? Um, the managers, the cooks who are sort of actually here. Static. Let's see how that is. Yeah, sometimes it's this chord. Sorry, technical <laughs> difficulties. Just unwinding it. So we'll try that. Don't see, hear it. See what happens. Anyway, so many people who support this retreat, the obvious ones that you see pretty much every day, but behind the scenes, um, all of the people who helped register you, the admin staff down the hill that do so much to support Spirit Rock. But even beyond that, you know, there's just so many people who've either sat this retreat or would like to sit this retreat, and it's kind of on their calendar. You know, if they were here last year, they're thinking about this retreat beginning. And actually, four of us just taught our, at our sister center, Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, their long retreat. It's a six-week or three-month retreat. So Bonnie, Guy, myself, and Aaron were there for six weeks. We were the first half, they were the second half. And there's a real, um, also strong connection between the two centers and these two pivotal retreats because these are the retreats where people who are really committed to practice come to practice, these long, uh, intensive retreats. And so for us as teachers, it's a real privilege to be able to be with you and support you here and at... IMS, um, but there's a wider community that's also supporting you, whether you're conscious of it or not. You know, we also say all beings are cheering you on as you practice here because what you are doing is so important, certainly important for you as individuals, but you have no idea the ripple effects of the work that you're doing here will have. And, you know, not trying to quantify anything, but just the intention of this group coming together to deepen in mindfulness, in wisdom, in compassion. 
it's profound just to sort of put this marker in the sand and say, we care about this. So we're kind of united in this. Um, and so many people out there really loving that you're able to be here and do this. Of course, and so there are many even of your friends and family who are like, oh great, you're going on retreats. They say, it's about time. I, I was feeling you should go on retreat. You know, you were getting a bit frayed around the edges and kind of pushing you to go. And then there are some that are saying, you're doing what? For how long? You know, and their eyes open and their jaws kind of drop. They couldn't fathom why anyone would choose to come and be in silence with 90 other strangers to have every meal, you know, oatmeal with 90 strangers. They're not strangers now anyway, but in silence. It's, it's, it is a weird thing to do, right? It's, it's a little strange. But this is, I really see this as the kind of the gathering of the tribe. You know, here in the Bay Area, we have Burning Man, right? In the summer, all the burners go out there and their weird clothes and their creativity and this whole uh, beautiful culture that they create. Well, this is our tribe gathering, and we're, but we're the tribe, I don't know, are we rockers, spirit rockers, or med- just meditators or yogis? But there's a commonality here, a shared passion and interest that we share with everyone here, perhaps more than you do with a lot of your friends and family, because of this interest, this passion for waking up. It's, it's so rare in our culture, yet we all here share that. So you'll find this deepening of connection with people here that you mightn't expect to happen, maybe end up with deeper connections than you have with many people back home because of this shared intentionality, uh, this shared interest in waking up. So just to kind of feel that as we embark on this journey together, both how we're held in the wider community of practitioners, but how each of us here are kind of uh, a necessary part of of this retreat and this shared um, experience. And so what we're doing is this turning away from the outer world and the busyness and turning inward. And we'll be doing that again and again, you know, this turning inward. And letting go of busyness, letting go of distraction. This is really what we call going against the stream, right? Because everything that's out there is do more, faster, quicker, you know, multitasking all at once. You know, don't lose a second in, in the activities of the day. And we're so connected now, right? It's just like you've got the world in the palm of your hand in a smartphone. And it's amazing how addictive it is. I mean, it's really incredible. I don't actually use my phone a lot, but if it beeps, we're just naturally geared to go, what was that? Is there something happening that I need to know about or respond to? And for those of you that are really plugged in, you know what that's like, that just incessant beeping and this sense of of, um, immediacy that these gadgets uh, call, sort of draw out of us. And, you know, my generation, like, email seemed to be a big radical step. It's like, oh, it's so fast. It arrives in 30 minutes, and you have to... Now it's like everything's instant. And it's not even, you know, instant messaging. Yes, it's really instant. Now it's Instagram. It's like, don't even type. Just send a photo. That's what we're getting to. Twitter, you know, 140 characters. Quick pop things around. 
And it's really, it's affecting how we relate to each other, right? It's affecting our whole culture, our whole um, sense of community. I read recently that one uh, study found that 8 to 18-year-olds spend an average of seven and a half hours a day using entertainment media. So some form of, you know, TV, the internet, phone, whatever. It's just becoming people's lives. And there's even syndromes happening now, right, because of that smartphone neck. It's like I'm getting a crick in my neck. And all the accidents, you know, you see videos of people walking along and falling into holes. Or I mean, it's terrible that it's happening, but it's happening. It's the opposite of mindfulness, right? You're so in, lost in this world that you don't know what's happening around you. I, have a, I make a habit of collecting cartoons that refer to meditation, and you can tell it's getting more mainstream because there's more of them now. So there's one I saw recently. Uh, oh, it's in the subgenre of meditation cartoons of the guru cartoon. Um, and in the guru cartoon, it's always pretty much the same. There's a bearded guy, it's usually a guy, uh, on top of some, you know, triangle mountain with some snow, and he's sitting in a cave, and the seeker is just, you know, climbing over the edge with their knapsack. So here's that scenario. The seeker has just popped over the edge looking at the guru, and you can tell they're just about to ask their question, you know, meaning of life or whatever their question is. But the guru has got their hand up like this, stop, wait, looking at their phone. It's like, <laughs> hold on, before I get to your question about the meaning of life. It's getting to that, right? You know, we're all so connected and not in touch with what's happening right here. What's in front, you know, going to any restaurant, how many people are sitting at the table looking at their phones and not talking to who's there? So, here we have a very different opportunity, right? Tomorrow, the cell phone renunciation ceremony. It's a big renunciation for many of us to let go of that portal into community, into friends, into the world, and turn inward just actually be with ourselves. Part of why that's so hard is our minds can be a little scary, right? It can be humbling sometimes to look at where our mind goes and what it does. And you'll see the mind has no shame about what it will dream up to distract you, to torment you, to entice you just to kind of while away the hours that we have here. I read this quote from Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, He said, if you could kick the person in the pants responsible for most of your trouble, you wouldn't sit for a month. We do it to ourselves a lot. Just this confusion and endless wanting and not wanting. Here we're really going to learn to make friends with this mind, make friends with ourselves and understand the mind, understand how it works. That really is our work here. And so we'll learn how to do that. You've all meditated before, but there's really an art to learning how to do long retreat, if you're new to long retreat. Something that took me a while to learn. My first long retreats, I really pushed and pulled, and I was so judgmental and so hard on myself. And it was so much better when I learned not to do that. 
If we could save you from doing that to yourself, we would. Anything we can say or do. Most of us have to learn that for ourselves. But really, trust me, that to be follow the attitude that James was encouraging this morning, this kind, relaxed attention, we'll be talking about that, um, because you'll have so many hours of learning and practicing with that. So what we're doing is developing mindfulness and watching and learning and understanding this mind, this mind here. And what will happen? We'll have this great intention and we'll get lost, right? Again and again and again. These thoughts of past or future, of home, of friends, of family, of business, whatever it is, will happen. We can't do this practice by sheer force of will. You can't force the mind to be mindful. But there really has to be this interest that we develop and this care about this, of what it is to be mindful and start to know that for yourself. As I said about the cartoons, mindfulness is becoming more mainstream, right? It's, it's actually kind of amazing. You know, even five years ago, if you had told me the level at which the conversation is happening about mindfulness in the culture, in business, in schools, I, I, I don't think I would have believed it. Um, but it's happening, right? I saw this article the other day. The five most important things we learned about mindfulness this year. So everyone's a mindfulness expert now, right? This is from the Huffington Post, of course. Scientists uncovered even more benefits of mindfulness, of meditation, by Carolyn Gregoire. She says, 2014 may have been the year of the mindful revolution. No one told me, but there we go. But 2015 proved that mindfulness is here to stay. I'm always a little weary of these, wary of these bold statements. But anyway, it's a whole article about the benefits of mindfulness based on scientific research, which again is another amazing and fabulous thing that is happening. I mean, the Buddha, someone, I think it was Bonnie, said he was brilliant. He discovered neuroscience 2,600 years ago. I really think he did. He was a brilliant student of the mind and how the mind works. But now they're actually doing research, so it's real, right? Now the scientists say so. But they figured out, so here are the five most incredible scientific findings on mindfulness in 2015. We figured out how mindfulness improves health, linked to a number of physical and mental health benefits, reduced risk of cancer, heart disease and depression. I mean, it's like the ultimate panacea or cure-all. I mean, it's whenever something gets so... Lauded, I know there's going to be a backlash, which I think there already is. Meditation keeps the brain young. Meditation doesn't just make you feel good. It can actually keep you young. It's going to take off in Hollywood. I can see that happening. It's an effective treatment for insomnia. If you can't sleep, meditate. Mindfulness relieves pain more effectively than a placebo. Mindfulness is good for kids, too. All of this research is happening. So you are in the epicenter of the mindfulness revolution here at Spirit Rock. But all of that kind of begs the question, what is mindfulness? There's a lot of people talking about it, but I think a lot of people actually don't know what it really is. Certainly not what the Buddha was talking about. It should be a simple question, right? Where 
it's a mindfulness retreat. We're practicing mindfulness meditation. But as you explore this further, and maybe you've already um, come to this, you see that different schools of Buddhism have different descriptions of what mindfulness is and how to practice it. And that even, even different teachers in the same tradition might talk about it differently. I know as teachers, we're often discussing, what do we really mean? What are we pointing to? What's essential about what we're talking about in mindfulness? The root, the, the word that we're translating as mindfulness in Pali, which was a language these teachings were written down in 2,500 or so years ago, the word is sati, S-A-T-I. And it has a root in uh, remembering. It has some functioning of remembering, which is interesting. We often say it's easy to be mindful, but it's hard to remember to be mindful. That's the trick. But helpful to just hold that in mind as we discuss mindfulness, that this word has its root in the function of remembering and memory. So it just broadens the context of mindfulness. The essence of mindfulness is, of course, being in the moment. But I want to expand that tonight a little as we embark on this journey of deepening in mindfulness. So it's this inner knowing, sense of presence, inner knowing, and outer connectedness. And the simplest definition, of course, is just knowing what's happening. Mindfulness is knowing what's happening. But I think as we deepen in what the Buddha called samasati, right mindfulness, there's more to it than just that. So, as, and as we practice vipassana, which is what we're practicing here, translated as insight meditation, there's a knowing that you're mindful, knowing that you know, knowing that you're cultivating this quality of mindfulness deliberately. Because many people, many beings are mindfulness. The deer are mindful, dogs are mindful, animals are mindful. People, you know, can be, uh, we just watched this documentary on these three climbers climbing Mount Meru, which they say makes climbing Mount Everest look like a walk in the park. It's this incredibly difficult climb with no support, just the three of them heading up the mountain. And it's one of those things where I look at it and go, why? Why would, why would you do that? But I'm sure people look at long retreats and say the same thing. Why? Why would you do that? But anyway, but they were very mindful, right? All their gear and their handholds and the, the, the environment, they were having to be incredibly mindful. But they weren't cultivating what the Buddha was talking about, um, which is more than just this bare mindfulness. Samasati is more than that. There's some kind of reflectiveness and it deepens into right understanding. It's this context, um, the sort of remembering part is really holding this as we practice, um, really brings it into right mindfulness, samasati. So let's just do a little exercise, if you wish, and your eyes are open. Just put your hands together like this. One of my teachers always starts this way. You can feel your hands touching each other, right? doesn't take any effort to do that. Right? That's the level of mindfulness we're talking about. It's very simple, very direct. You have an experience, in this case the hand's touching, and by directing your attention you know that, right? Anyone not know? I mean, sometimes we can have various you know, nerve things where we don't, but most people know it's happening, right? 
that's mindfulness. But most of you now have your eyes open, and so you have been looking at me, but were you mindful that you were seeing? Were you? Honest? Were you mindful that you were seeing? Or were you just seeing and not? So we can know something, like you knew you were seeing me, but until I drew your attention, now are you mindful that you're seeing me? And do you see the difference there? This is what we'll be exploring a lot over this, these weeks together, from a, the barest of knowing, but just knowing that you're knowing. So you know how to cultivate that sense of presence. This is... Um, what samasati is. Now, sama is a word that's a prefix for each of the path factors. Sati is a path factor. It's one of the noble eightfold path. And so they're all prefixed by sama. And sama means, simple translation is right. Um, but it doesn't mean right as wrong, opposed to wrong. It means right as in onward leading, um, perfected, uh, wise or true. So we sometimes say wise mindfulness. Um, And the purpose and the power, you could even say the function of this kind of mindfulness is to develop wholesome qualities and decrease unwholesome ones. That mindfulness, when it's functioning in this way, has that very capacity because there's wisdom in it. And what can happen, um, we just, that just starts to happen naturally. This developing wholesome qualities, decreasing unwholesome ones, and then we start to develop insight. This is Vipassana meditation, insight. And that can happen on a personal level, where we start to understand ourselves, our history, our past traumas, call it unwinding karmic knots. can happen on a very individual level. It can happen on a collective or cultural level. We are not isolated beings. We carry with us all of the previous generations here in this room, if we could populate it with everyone and all the beings that uh, went before us, there'd be this huge range of beings in this room. And so this, this insight can happen, this unwinding can happen on all these different levels. It can also happen on a very impersonal level where it's not individual, it's the same for everyone and everything. Noticing what we call the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. Again, we'll talk more about these kinds of teachings as we go along, but just to give you a sense of the breadth, the depth, and the power of just this simple knowing, this simple sense of presence. But it's because of that, as one of my teachers, Sadhu Tejaniya, says, he has a whole book where he says, Awareness alone is not enough. Mindfulness, he's translating sati as awareness. Mindfulness alone is not enough. It needs this wisdom, this context of knowing what's happening and knowing what we're developing as we're practicing. He'll say things like, the basic objective of meditation is to improve the quality of the mind. So this is a mind training that we're doing here. We're deeply training the mind. And I've always loved that this is called insight meditation. The translation of this term vipassana is most commonly translated as insight, but it can literally mean to see deeply. To see deeply into what? 
the amazing answer is everything. Everything, inner, outer, every aspect of our experience to see as clearly and deeply as possible. And what is humbling about this, this practice is to realize that we often don't. We think we are, but we are not seeing clearly. And it's humbling. We can be blinded by our habits, by our conditioning, by our projections and perceptions and preconceptions. We can make all of these assumptions about other people. We can make assumptions based on what we see, based on skin color or size or shape or form, uh, what we sort of project about them when we hear them speak or how they're dressed, about people's sexual identities. We are often living out of those projections and not seeing clearly, not allowing people to be who they truly are through our projections. We can make assumptions about ourselves, we definitely relate to ourselves out of those similar kinds of projections um, of our capacities or our sense of limitation, our identities. The Talmud says we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are, meaning we see through our conditioning, we see through our um, projections and perceptions. We, and we could say, the, the phrase, or the teaching is don't see things as they are. We could say we don't see people as they are often because we're blinded by all of that. So our practice here is to learn to be with things, things, people, ourselves, everything, on all these different layers as directly, immediately, and simply as possible. This is really what our practice is. And then to use that exploration to begin to understand ourselves, our minds, our bodies, and the world. And it's amazing how this happens through this simple practice of sitting and walking. It's like entering into this beautiful exploration This is a poem I like to read. From Mary Oliver, who always writes so beautifully about her own being in the world and how she inhabits her world. This is called Mindful. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. O good scholar, I say to myself, How can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these, the untrimmable light of the world, the oceans shine, the prayers that are made out of grass? So we learn from ourselves and from the world how this all works and how we can grow wise and suffer less, be more compassionate, this inner knowing. So to do that, 
this context within which this mindfulness is happening is so important. This, and I talk about the three times. The most important one is this time, this moment, right here, right now. Jack Cornfield always says this line. He said he saw a sign in Las Vegas. Who knows, but it's a good story. You have to be present to win. And same in Las Vegas, same in meditation. You have to be present for this to unfold. So this is where we start. But as I've said earlier, and we've already said in the instructions, what happens? We get lost, right? We get confused. We get entranced by fantasies and remembering and rehashing. We, we, we build our world, in, inner world in the mind. But at some point, hopefully, we wake up, right? However long it's been, five seconds or five minutes or 50 minutes. At some point, a bell will ring or someone will cough and you're like, oh, where am I? What am I doing? And that's why practicing with other people is helpful. You look around and you go, oh, right, meditation, spirit rock. That's where I am. The really important thing, as James has already said, is what you do with that moment. Be grateful because you've woken up in that moment. No need to bring judging, aversion, calculation, how long was that, you know, berating yourself. We're here. But it is helpful to take a moment, and this is, you know, a technique that in some ways is simple but can be it can be easy to not do it in a skillful way, um, where we just kind of have a momentary glance back. What was happening just then? What was the mind filled with? What was I lost in? Not to do the long string, you know, I thought of that, and then I thought of that, and that reminded me of that, and then I went here, you know. Sometimes that's interesting, but most of the time not. This is like a snapshot. You just kind of go, what was mind filled with, you know? And you, you know it, right? It was work or the email you did or didn't send or the last conversation you had with your partner or the unfinished business. It only takes a moment to kind of get what the mind was filled with. Then we can kind of assess what was the attitude in that experience? Was I trying to hold on, create, grasp something Or was I pushing away irritation, boredom, frustration, aversion? Or was I completely spaced out, disconnected? I I was, I don't even know where I was. Just this simple checking in, we call it checking into the attitude. Again, this is a Sayadaw Utejaniya term. As a teacher who's been very helpful for me, um, is referring to what we call the kalesas. The Buddha talked about again and again, the source of our suffering torments of mind, of greed, aversion, and delusion. Very big categories within which a lot of subsets of our experience can fall, but it's amazing how often what we're experiencing is some variation of one of those. Holding on, pushing away, spacing out. So it's just this little checking in, getting to be familiar with what's the tendency of the mind. What am I cultivating? Because what we're dwelling on, as the Buddha said, Whatever, is the, uh, whatever we frequently think and dwell upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. So if we spend a lot of time lost in greed or in aversion, that will become the inclination of the mind. We will, we will cultivate that. So we don't need to ruminate about this. We don't need to judge it or blame it. It's just what the mind was doing. Um, but 
from that very, uh, just like, it's a momentary snapshot. You, you know what was happening. We make a choice in the mindfulness of the moment. What's the wise response? This is the wisdom coming in. And then, of course, you know, that moment's gone. We're in the next moment. It's not, and this is like the future moment. It's not like we're ever in the future, but we've responded to what was happening with, it, with mindfulness, and that develops into what happens next in a way, the future. And so there our practice is, again, not in a judgmental way, but just this kind of, okay, I tried that, you know, I made that adjustment, I changed the posture or breathed a little more deeply or had some response. Did that help? Did that, did that move in a direction of more connection or more ease or more equanimity or more compassion or kindness or whatever it is? So we kind of get a sense of that. We do this over and over again, and we learn how to do it in a very simple way. It might sound complex. It, even to me, it sounds kind of complex as I'm talking through it, but it really is just this orienting. It's like a, a, comp, a, a, the, you know, a compass point. It's not rigid railway, to, I'm going in this direction, everything else is bad and wrong. It's this responsive softness to experience out of our sense of intention for ourselves, what we want to cultivate, what we're looking to learn and grow in as we come here. So this is what we're doing all the time. And this is our practice. This is the middle way. Not too extreme in one direction, not too tight, not too loose, not too this way, not too that way, but really this compass orientation. And to practice mindfulness with mindfulness. It seems kind of silly, right? But this is how we bring in this... Samasati brings the wisdom in, and then it becomes... I talked about samasati, wise or right mindfulness. It becomes satipanya, mindfulness wisdom. One of the teachers who were... One one of our great forebears, Ajahn Buddhadasa, Thai forest meditation master, he would never just talk about sati. He would always talk about satipanya, mindfulness wisdom, that the two should be inseparable. The mindfulness having this natural capacity to reveal and and, um, enlighten and awaken and, and, and help us let go. Sayadu Tejaniya would talk about awareness wisdom, again, using awareness for mindfulness. Satipanya, as I said, Mindfulness has this, when it's really uh, cultivated, it it sees the suffering when the mind is holding on, when it's gripped by something, even if the grip is aversion, and naturally wants to let go. It suddenly says, oh dear, you don't need to do that. That's hard, that's suffering, that's struggle. What would it be like to release, to let go, to be a little more open, accepting, balanced? So it sees when we get caught in identification. It sees when we get caught in struggle. And it's not like it's a magic bullet and, you know, you just completely let things go. But even the recognition of the struggle, of the challenge, whatever it is, when mindfulness says, oh, this is really hard right now, or you see, I'm really holding on to this, I'm really caught here, something lets go a little, something eases a little. So we can start to trust that, really start to trust that in these weeks of practice. 
So we're using mindfulness, or mindfulness is a training to direct our mental energy into the present moment and to seeing clearly. This is really what we're doing here over and over again. And we see how much, I'm sure you're already aware that we're just lost in past and future, right? Just endlessly. Worry, anxiety, planning for the future, regret, rumination, shame, blame, remorse about the past. This is the strong movements of the mind. Training to be present. Again, this is one of my favorites, those, my great gurus, Calvin and Hobbes, where Hobbes is a, a small boy and I'm sorry, Calvin is a small boy and Hobbes is his imaginary, very wise tiger friend. And Calvin and Hobbes in this cartoon are climbing a tree. And Calvin is saying, I suppose the secret to happiness is learning to appreciate the moment. And they keep climbing higher. Calvin says, I, for example, take great pleasure in being right here, right now, doing what we're doing. And they get up to this high branch. And Hobbes says, of course, you're supposed to be in school. And Calvin says, I couldn't appreciate those moments. But that's often why we want the good moments to be mindful of, right? These bad, yucky moments where the knees are aching or we're exhausted or irritated. It's like mind, mindfulness is, you know, taking a break then. That's when we need the mindfulness. Because what we start to see is in this training of the mind that mindfulness actually helps us meet those moments, even if they're difficult, and then gives us a choice. And again, we'll talk about this again and again, this choice point. When the mindfulness is there, it's clear, and it sees the suffering, whatever form it's taking, and it knows how to respond with kindness, with compassion, with wisdom, whatever that wisdom might look like. This is how we change the conditioning. This is how we change the habits of the mind. We develop this as a skill. We start to understand our experience by seeing it as it's happening, seeing what the mind does, what it does when, you know, we're not bringing the wisdom in and how it can just go here, there and everywhere, really. When we dwell on certain experiences, certain thought patterns, certain memories, these states arise, grief, sadness, anger, irritation, frustration, when we let go, when we accept, when we bring kindness and compassion in, this different experience arises. We see it for ourselves. We start to know that for ourselves. So the practice is what is happening and how am I relating to it? This is so key. How am I relating to it? So it's not just what is happening. So the knee can be aching or the back or the uh, thoughts of a certain experience. How am I relating to that? That's what's so important. And what am I learning from this? What's actually happening in this th- thread of experience? Again, as I say this, not to go overboard with questions. This is not about, you know, I need to bombard my experience with all these questions. This is immediate. This is just this curiosity, uh, investigation, uh, Dhamma Vichaya, investigation. Be curious if a lot of negative mind states are growing. If you're really feeling irritable or frustrated or aversive, what's happening? What are you paying attention to? How are you feeding that? Because you are. 
in some way, even if you're not aware of it. When positive mind states are growing of peace or calm or kindness or generosity, we want to understand that too. This is key. We want to really know when the heart is opening and there's more compassion towards yourself or to others. So we understand that process too. This is the classic practice the Buddha talked about of we want to starve the hindrances, the negative states of mind, and we want to feed the positive ones, the brightness of mind, the openness of heart, the the pleasure even in the practice. And in all this, recognize we can't control what's happening But through this mindfulness, through this awareness, we can actually have more um, options, more choices, and deliberately over these weeks grow these positive states. This is what our practice is about. And really what the most important thing of what I say tonight is that this is not a passive practice. Vipassana, to see clearly, isn't just sitting down and whatever happens, happens. It is having this intentionality in our practice that starts from accepting whatever our current moment experience is. And James has been using these beautiful words, relaxed, interested, kind awareness. These are so key. We'll repeat them many times. So that's the, the, the basis, the foundation of our practice. But then there's many options. The first response is always just that. Can we be with this, with that attitude, with mindfulness? But then we might have all kinds of other possibilities that we'll talk about as we deepen in our practice together. We might want to bring in metta practice, loving kindness or compassion. We might want to change the object. We might want to move from sitting into walking or go do some yoga, take a a vigorous walk. Um, We might want to investigate something with really a great deal of detail. We might want to balance, if we're really feeling dull, what would it take to bring energy into the practice, more aliveness, more alertness. If we're really restless, how do we know, how do we bring calm in? We'll be exploring this over these weeks together. And one of the key things is that we learn that it's not what's happening that's important, but how we're relating to it. This is so key. We are so trained, we so want the good meditation, the good experience, that, that you know, a, and a good meditation is when we have a good experience, right? When the body, the energy's flowing, and everything's easy, and we're awake, and we're alert. That's not, I mean, that's great to have, you know, wonderful, but a good meditation is where you're actually learning something from it. As again, Saito Tejaniya saying says, what is happening is never a problem if we're mindful, mindful of it. He says, objects do not meditate, it is the mind that meditates. That is why meditation is called mind work, and why you need to know about the mind, whatever's happening. If you're aware of it, you're meditating, and that's a good meditation. So we're not training to be good breathers. We're not training to know everything about a knee pain and the, the energy of the body, even though those things are helpful to explore. But we're training to notice what's happening and how we're relating to it, what our attitude is. So it's not the object but the mind, the attitude, the attention 
that's important and what we're training. And we'll also talk in these weeks together about this spectrum of practices. Um, I've been talking a lot about vipassana or insight practice, which is where we're uh, open to the whole range of experience. But there's another style of practice um, for deepening in steadiness of mind, concentration, called samatha practices. And there we take one simple object, often the breath, but could be other things as well, and we just steady the attention, collect the attention around that. And we can do that to deeper and deeper states of concentration, even leading to what we call jhanas or absorption states, through these calming, tranquilizing practices. Most of the time in the instructions, we'll be talking about vipassana, where we want to be open to the whole range of experience. But all of us can really benefit from some steadying practices, simple, calming practices, samatha practices. And we'll find what's right for each one of us, where we are on that spectrum. Sometimes want to be really engaged and doing a lot of investigation. There's a lot of interest and energy at other times, knowing how to calm and steady and be, be more cool and collected. And we'll probably be somewhere in the middle, which is a great place to be in. But knowing what you're doing, what you're cultivating as you're practicing is so important. And again, this is what we'll be refining um, as we go through these weeks together. But the essential part is Here, now, in the moment, knowing what's happening, responding with kindness. What's the wise response? What's the skillful response? This kind, relaxed, interested attention. And I love as I reflect on these words as instructions or as um, supports for practice, that each three represent an important aspect of our practice. The kindness is the heart quality, the compassion quality. The interested is the wisdom quality. It's like bringing the mind in. What's happening here? Getting curious about our experience. And then relaxed is being embodied and really inviting the sense of inhabiting this body in a gentle way, inviting relaxation. So our practice is really bringing these three together, the heart, the mind, and the body, here and now. This is our practice for our time together. And in some ways it's so simple, but we know it's not easy. The habits, the force of mind can just push us off in so many directions. But we are here to practice and cultivate the habit, the quality, the art of mindfulness and truly to develop what we call samasati, right or wise mindfulness. So I want to finish uh, with the words of Ajahn Chah, another one of our dear teachers and Thai forest meditation masters. He says, As I see it, the mind is like a single point, the center of the universe, and mental states are like the visitors who come to stay at this point for short or long periods of time. Get to know these visitors well. Become familiar with the vivid pictures they paint, the alluring stories they tell, to entice you to follow them. But do not give up your seat. It is the only chair around. If you continue to occupy it unceasingly, 
greeting each guest as it comes, firmly establishing yourself in awareness, transforming yourself, transforming your mind into the one who knows, the one who is awake. The visitors will eventually stop coming back. If you give them real attention, how many times can these visitors return? Speak with them here and you will know each of them every one of them well, then your mind will at last be at peace. And what he's talking about is not trying to build a wall so these thoughts, these visitors, these emotions don't happen, but knowing them so intimately, meeting them so profoundly that in that knowing, their energy relaxes and releases. And then, as he says, we become the one who is awake the one who knows, in this seat, here and now. This is our path and our practice. So the end of our talks, we just like to invite you to let the words settle into silence. Don't need to change your posture. It's just taking a few deeper breaths, relaxing in mind and body. If you want to sit more comfortably, you can. But we just take some moments in silence before we move to the next activity. Thank you for your attention. <clears throat> we'll now go to a walking period, and then at 9 o'clock we'll have the last formal sit of the evening, and we usually do some chanting. At Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.